This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Folks, the normalization of criminal behavior continues. Welcome to the program. You've heard me talk about this topic from time to time, and I'm going to keep talking about it because there's a slow bleed going on by the soft-on-crime, get-out-of-jail-free advocates. It's a drip, 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 the death of a thousand cuts. A few thousand here, a few thousand there, but this brings the total up to 18,000 federal prisoners that Barack Obama has either commuted their sentence or just basically let out early. This is going to have a devastating impact on minority communities. These policies have a disparate impact on black people. You know how the the left loves to talk about disparate impact. In crime stats, they talk about disparate impact. They talk about it in terms of police stops. Oh, they love that one. The disparate amount of black people who are pulled over by police and traffic stops. The disparate amount of prisoners in our prison system, criminals who are black. And when you really start to peel the layers back and look at the statistics, any disparity is explained away with their involvement in crime. But the myths being perpetrated are really what bother me. Because the people on the right, the the so-called Republicans, well, the Republicans, I meant to say so-called conservatives. They are drinking the Kool-Aid. They are starting to parrot the myths, the propaganda, and the talking points of the left on this issue. This is just another instance of the left. It's a Saul Alinsky tactic. Can we get them on our side? Release these individuals back into the community, restore their voting rights, Now you have another demographic that will be a reliable vote for Democrats. Criminals. The disparate impact here will be on otherwise law-abiding black people and some brown people as well, Hispanics, who live in the American ghetto where most of the crime occurs. And that's the thing that bothers me. Who is the victim's back in all of this public policy? Who's speaking on behalf of the victims of crime? Overwhelmingly black, by the way. I don't hear Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, African-American senator. I don't hear him speaking on behalf of the overwhelming majority of law-abiding black people in his home district. I don't hear him speaking on their behalf. So I came across this article in Real Clear Politics. I'm going to read it. I'll have some comments along the way. The Justice Department has announced that it will begin releasing 6,000 nonviolent inmates from federal prison starting at the end of this month. Welcome to the era of de-incarceration. At a conference named for former New York Mayor David Dinkins, who presided over the city at a time of runaway crime, no surprise there, Hillary Clinton decried the number 
of Americans Behind Bars and declared it's time to change our approach. It's time to end the era of mass incarceration. That is one of the buzzwords that they like to use. Mass incarceration. Here's another one. Nonviolent offenders. Low-level nonviolent offenders. That these prison inmates are victims of the war on drugs. Victims. The criminals are now the victims. Back to the story. And this she is joined by Bernie Sanders and other Democrats, and also by Charles Koch, who recently wrote that, quote, overcriminalization has led to mass incarceration of those ensnared by our criminal justice system. Let me stop there. As if the criminal justice system is just reaching out to some black or Hispanic guy walking down the street saying his prayers with his rosary intertwined in between his fingers and snaring them out, putting, planting drugs in their pocket and then arresting them and convicting them and imprisoning them for drug possession. This is, this is crazy. Ensnared. But you see how they couch this, how they frame it. Back to the story here. Even though such imprisonment does not always enhance public safety, indeed, more than half of the federal inmates are nonviolent drug offenders. Senator Rand Paul has called mass incarceration the new Jim Crow. Rand Paul, the new Jim Crow. And Carly Fiorina suggested during the last debate, quote, we have the highest incarceration rates in the world. Two-thirds of the people in our prisons are therefore nonviolent offenders mostly drug-related. It's clearly not working. Carly Fiorina. Back to the story here. Not exactly. The U.S. does have the highest incarceration in the world. That is among nations that list these data honestly. But the assertion that most of the people incarcerated are therefore non-violent crimes is false. It is a lie. Advocates for de-incarceration often cite the number of federal prisoners who committed non-violent drug offenders. This is highly misleading, it says. Of the 2.2 million inmates in America, only about 200,000 are federal prisoners. About half of federal inmates are sentenced for drug crimes, but this shouldn't shock anyone. Nearly all violent crimes are state matters. Robberies, rapes, assaults, and murders are mostly state matters. Among state inmates, only one in six is a drug offender. That means the rest of them are there for violent crime. Among the 50% of nonviolent federal drug offenders, it's difficult to know how many were arrested for violent crime and plea bargained to a lesser offense. Let me stop there. This is one of the myths, the things that's not talked about. A person gets convicted of a crime, and these oftentimes in the plea bargain, it's watered down. Charges are dismissed, tar- charges are dropped. He may have been arrested for a felony, and he pleads to a misdemeanor, or a low-level, I should say, not a misdemeanor, a low-level drug offense, but he may have been involved in like a burglary, which is not a nonviolent crime. You, I've told you what would happen if you break into my house and I'm home. It's going to be a very violent matter for the perpetrator. So you may have 25 counts of delivery of heroin. Heroin. Deaths are on the rise. Overdoses. 
and he'll plead to one. And so then we, they want to consider that guy a low-level, nonviolent drug offender. He's a major drug dealer. And if you're a mom living in the ghetto, trying to keep your kids on the straight and narrow, or you have some kid who is addicted to drugs, and you're trying desperately to keep your kid away from drugs and the drug dealer who's standing right down the street, tell her this is a low-level crime, not a big deal. It's a very big deal to her. Back to the story. But to design good policy on that, we'd have to grapple with a number of issues. What do you do with offenders who are placed on probation or parole but continue to offend? Trust me, ladies and gentlemen, property crimes are going to skyrocket. And violent crime will as well, but property crimes, because many of these individuals involve themselves in property crime to support their habits. So this isn't just a drug user. We'll continue this when we come back. The Blaze Radio Network, on demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. Find more on demand at theblaze.com slash radio. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. Did you ever see the images of, uh, of Kim and Kanye, by the way? I did. She is a house. Beyond pregnant, she is a house. Is she pregnant in her butt? Everything seems to be kind of uh, coalesced down in like that general... People do carry babies different ways. Apparently she carries it in her ass. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. We left off with reading from a, a story from Real Clear Politics on this de-incarceration, this, this release starting at the end of this month of 6,000 additional federal prison prisoners back into the American ghetto where there are no jobs, where there's entrenched poverty and, and no real means for them to get their lives back on track. Not only about, you know, with some mindless program. What they're going to do ultimately is return back to criminal activity because that's what they know, they're career criminals. And I saw one such study that uh, when they were looking at recidivism rates, 75% of people within five years who are on probation or parole or let out on probation or parole are rearrested and convicted. Yet we hear so much about the success of these rehabilitation programs. Coming up later in the show, you're going to want to stick around for this. I'm going to talk about the imperial presidency of Barack Obama. I'm also going to get into a little deeper, drill down a little deeper into this gun control issue. Uh, This thing is still simmering. All right, don't trust the left. They like to do this stuff when you're not listening. But anyway, getting back to this de-incarceration and release of this get-out-of-jail-free program from Real Clear Politics here. It goes on to say that we don't have a good, we don't have any good data on how many were previously convicted of a violent crime. These people that they're letting out, these low-level drug offenders. 
A 2004 Bureau of Justice Statistics study found that 95% of those who served time in state prisons for nonviolent crimes had a preceding criminal history, typically 9.3 arrests per inmate and 4.1 convictions, and 31% had a history of arrests for violent crime. These are not low-level nonviolent offenders. Of these 18,000 that Barack Obama is unleashing back into the American ghetto, we have no idea who these people are. No one has taken the time to look at the criminal history of these individuals. This isn't being done individually. These are just mass releases. So the story goes on to say, Many on both sides of the political spectrum are eager to leap aboard the de-incarceration bandwagon. It is a way to show sympathy with African Americans and to a much lesser degree Hispanics who are disproportionately represented among inmates. Bingo! That's why you see Republicans getting on the bandwagon as a way to show sympathy with African-Americans, with African-American criminals. You're not showing sympathy to African-American and Hispanic victims of crime. You are being cruel. But that's what this is all about. This, this is what's behind Carly Fiorina's support of this. This is what's behind Mike Lee and Senator Goodlatte and Chris Christie. And Rand Paul, I had a conversation, a lengthy one with Chris Christie this summer, talking about this very thing. And I told him, I said, Governor, stop drinking the Kool-Aid. And I ran this down as to what was really behind this. Story goes on to say, but the primary victims of crime are also African Americans and Hispanics. If Unlock them up becomes the new conventional wisdom. More innocent people will suffer and more businesses will flee. Don't these people get it? Is this that difficult? Why don't they just call me first? Most of these people know who I am. I'm in this business. I'm in law enforcement, criminal justice. I'm as close to an expert as you're going to find. I don't consider myself an expert in anything. I don't like that label. But I can help them out. You want to draft a policy? You want to draft a position, a white paper on it? I'll frame it out for you and I'll help you. I'll get the data. I'll do the research for you. I'll footnote it. There'll be very little opinion in there. But no, this is chasing votes. I find that immoral. So the story goes on to say, We've become complacent about crime because the crime rate has declined drastically since 1990. According to the FBI, violent crime increased by nearly 83% between 1973 and 1991, a period of criminal justice leniency. From 1991 to 2001, when incarceration rates increased, violent crime declined by 33.6%. The decline has persisted until recently. The incapacitation argument is this. 
criminals who are behind bars cannot be mugging people. That seems awfully strong. It would, of course, be a lot better world if fewer Americans were growing up in neighborhoods where fatherlessness, intergenerational government dependency, and poor schools contribute to high rates of crime. But it's hard to see how releasing more criminals to prey upon those very neighborhoods is the answer. You know, Republicans used to own this issue. This is military superiority. That was theirs. I don't understand why they're now teaming up with liberal, soft-on-crime Democrats who believe in coddling criminals. Think about this. Why are they seeding ground on this? But here's what I want to talk about as well. Let's take a look at the people who are behind this inane idea. You have your academic elites. These are all based on some best practice and some research, and it's all flawed. The intelligentsia. You have the liberal mainstream media elites. All your editorial boards from the liberal mainstream uh, uh, newspapers and TV stations are all behind this. You have your political elites on both sides of the aisle, the President of the United States, and now you have members of Congress. You have your judicial elites who are typically soft on crime. And then you have some wealthy individuals, you know, like the Koch brothers. But what do these people have in common? Here's what they have in common. The likelihood of them coming into contact with a criminal is slim to none, and slim just left the building. None of these people that I have named live even near the American ghetto. Most of them lived in gated communities. Their kids go to school that have high security. The president, Sidwell Friends, his daughter, armed security. They live in gated communities, many of them armed with armed security and high-tech surveillance. They aren't going to come in contact They're not going to run into these idiots at the gas station where the holdup might occur, where they might get carjacked. And this is what what drives me the craziest about this. you got the people making this very important public policy decision that won't be around when this thing fails. Their kid won't be the next victim. Their kid won't be confronted by a drug dealer's peddling heroin. Their kid will have to go down in the ghetto to find the heroin. What about the victim in all of this? But I guess they don't matter. Coming up next, we're going to talk about the imperial presidency of Barack Obama. David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. What must each candidate either do and or avoid having happen in order for the news coverage to say that they did well? Because the best you can do is, is news coverage immediately following and social media and other media drawing a consensus about who did well, who did poorly. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
short shrift so and, I, and this is important folks this is huge as donald trump likes to say we're talking about our liberty and our freedom when we start monkeying with the constitution outside a way that congress we the people that congress proposed to amend it there is an amendment process within the constitution if we don't like the way things are written up in the constitution we change it not by an executive order, not by a court mandate, but through the process within the Constitution. Okay, there's an amendment process, and it has to be followed. Otherwise, the Constitution doesn't mean anything. So again, when we talk about the Second Amendment, we talk about gun control, we're really talking about the document itself. Just like how the United States Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, came to a definition of marriage outside of what the Constitution says, is the process for amending the Constitution. Granting rights to people, not specifically talked about in the Constitution. And here's what I mean by that. The Constitution says anything not expressed here is left to the states. And the individual states were handling the gay marriage issue. Some were saying okay. Some were saying not okay. Again, the Constitution says whatever's not explicit, explicitly stated in here is reserved for the states. So now getting back, back to this, this, this gun control issue. Came across a piece in the Daily Signal. It's by Amy Payne. Seven times Obama ignored the law to impose his executive will. President Obama, the imperial president, the, quote, I've got a pen and I've got a phone president who can't wait to show us his year of action once vowed to do exactly the opposite. Here's what he said when George W. Bush was president. The biggest problem we have facing us right now has to do with George W. Bush trying to bring more and more power into the executive branch and not go through Congress at all. And that's what I intend to reverse when I'm President of the United States. Barack Obama said that. But now all of a sudden that he is the President of the United States, he behaves in a different manner. Here's the seven times that this author says that he ignored the law to impose his executive will. Delaying the Obamacare's employer mandate. Second, giving Congress and their staffs special taxpayer-funded subsidies for Obamacare. Third, trying to fulfill the, if you like your plan, you can keep it promise, after it was broken. Four, preventing layoff notices from going out just days before the 2012 election. Five, gutting the work requirement from welfare reform. Six, stonewalling the application for storing nuclear waste at Yucca Mountain. Seven, making recess appointments that were not really recess appointments. And then the author goes on to say, 
There's a lot more that he did that are too numerous to mention here, but I think you get her point. And this is what I want to expand on. We have not seen this sort of rule over us since we were under the jurisdiction of Great Britain and King George. No president has ever acted this recklessly with the Constitution. There have been presidents who've done some things that maybe we didn't agree with policy-wise, but to just outright circumvent Congress and just outright through executive action wipe out our rights under the Constitution. And we put up with this. Congress isn't doing anything about it. The last time I looked, Congress is a co-equal branch of government. Co-equal means the same authority as the other two branches, the Supreme Court and the executive branch. But that's not the case under this monarch, Barack Obama. And he knows, he knows that Congress won't do anything about it. So when I hear people ask, well, you know, what kind of person are you looking for uh, to be the next president of the United States? And you know what I say? Simply, because I like to th- keep things simple. I want a president who's going to follow the Constitution. And we can argue and discuss the aspects of that later in terms of presidential policy, but I don't want a president who's going to operate outside the Constitution of the United States. And so when I listen to people get into all this esoteric and down in the weeds about what kind of president we need, it's real simple, one who's going to follow the Constitution. That's what his, or maybe her one day, oath says. I will support the Constitution of the United States. It's one of the most solemn responsibilities that up until now he has had. Support the Constitution of the United States. He's in violation of his oath of office. Go back and read your Declaration of Independence. I tell people that all the time. They say, what should we do? What do we need to do? Read the Declaration of Independence. It applies today like it did in the 1700s. And it says that, in part, the people have the right to alter or abolish any government that doesn't meet their needs. It says people have a Duty. It is their right and duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. It didn't say just back then. It said people have a duty. That means in perpetuity. And I look at this train of abuses outlined in the Constitution of the United States. This is the stuff King George was doing. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. That's what these executive orders are. They are pretended legislation. 
We do not have to follow it. When I say we, the Congress does not have to follow it. Why did they then fund his executive amnesty? The Republican-controlled Congress did that. Funded executive amnesty. He does not have the authority to do that. Under our Constitution, in Article 1, Section Section 8, it says very clearly, Congress has the authority to establish and uniform rule of naturalization. Congress, it does not say the executive. So Congress sits up here and allows themselves to be walked all over by this imperial president, and all we hear is, well, we're going to file a suit. Oh, so now you're going to throw this on the third branch that is co-equal. You don't have to go to them. Don't fund it. Well, then we'll have to shut down the government and then we'll get blamed for it. I don't care. This is not about you. This is about we the people. And most importantly, it's about the Constitution of the United States. We're going to continue this in the next segment about this executive action on gun control. This is David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. It was interesting, though, to see uh, the exact route Jeffy walked on the way to the starting point, because you could see it marked by the sweat trail. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's where Jeffy crossed right there. Oh, it looked like you stopped there for a minute because there's still a puddle. (laughs) It was uh, was not pretty. Have you thought about seeing a physician for For something other than excess pain pills you don't need? Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Demand. David Clark, the People's Sheriff. We're talking about the President of the United States now with his pen and his phone, thinking about issuing an executive order limiting further our Second Amendment rights under the Constitution just by executive fiat. Going back to the Constitution, here's a list of the grievances that they were dealing with at the time under King George. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government. That's what Obama has done. The executive branch under him is not co-equal. He doesn't care what the United States Supreme Court says. He's violated their rulings. He for damn sure doesn't care what the Congress says. He has basically neutered them. And it goes on to say another grievance here for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with the power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. Obamacare. Here's another one. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature, meaning the crown, to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. 
We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation. We hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemy in wars and peace friends. You know, it goes on to say another one here. This one's real good. In every stage of these operations, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Basically, what we've done is in 2014, we told them, no, that's enough. That's about enough, Mr. Obama. But it says our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose charter is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Barack Obama is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. We don't get ruled by the government. They do not lord over us. And I talked about the way if, if, if the President of the United States and if the country, like we did with slavery, like we did with women's suffrage, like we did 27 times, if we have a problem with, with the way the, the Constitution is written, there's a way to amend it. This is the brilliance of this document. Article 5, the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments. That's how we amend the Constitution, not through a Supreme Court ruling, and for damn sure, not through an executive order. This is way outside, way, I mean, this doesn't even skirt the Constitution. It obliterates it. And the Congress stands by and allows it. And then I talked about Article 10, when, when things in this document that we don't like, not Article 10, I'm sorry, the Tenth Amendment, pardon me. The Tenth Amendment says, it's real simple. It's just a couple sentences long. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. We get to decide. The states get to decide on some of these things where it's not expressly talked about in the Constitution. It's reserved for the states, not for the federal government, not for the President of the United States, not even for the Congress. It is reserved to the states. So now Obama comes along, and he's going to exploit the tragedy in Oregon at that community college to advance his political agenda. That's all this guy does. Everything that happens, every tragedy, he digs through his bag of, of tricks and he says, what can I accomplish on my political agenda out of this? Well, he's back for some more gun control. This comes from the Washington Post. Juliet Eilperin. In response to the latest mass shooting during his presidency, President Obama is seriously considering circumventing Congress with his executive authority and imposing new background check requirements for 
buyers who purchase weapons from high-volume gun dealers. In the wake of last week's tragedy, Obama says he has asked his team to scrub what kind of authorities we have to enforce laws that we have in place more effectively to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. This has never been about, for Barack Obama or the anti-gun movement, this has never been about keeping guns out of the hands of criminals. It has never been about reducing the instances of mass murder. This has to do with breaking the backs of a lobby that disagrees with their gun policies. The National Rifle Association, Gun Owners of America, and other pro-gun groups. That's what this has to do with because they know that the influence that these groups have over our legislative body, the Congress, prevents him from obliterating the Second Amendment. And he has to get them out of the way. They're a very organized effort. We're organized on this issue through the NRA and through Gun Owners of America and other pro-gun groups that are too numerous to mention here. But those are the, those are the bigger ones. I'm a member of the, the NRA, an endowment member. I encourage you to join too because it is an organized effort that is winning on this. That's what this is about for Barack Obama, to weaken the influence of the NRA on Capitol Hill so that they can then go ahead and arm twist and get the Congress to do what we the people do not want them to do, and that is restrict our Second Amendment rights. So it says the proposed executive action, going back to the article, aims to impose background checks on individuals who buy from dealers who sell a significant number of guns each year. The current federal statute dictates that those who are, quote, engaged in the business of dealing firearms need to obtain a federal license and therefore conduct background checks, but exempts anyone who makes occasional sales, exchanges, or purchases of firearm, firearms for the enforcement of a personal collection or for a hobby or who sell all or part of his personal collection of firearms. That's a private transaction. Though That's not how these guns are getting into the hands of criminals and mass murderers. They know that. For Barack Obama and the anti-gun movement, this isn't about gun control. It's not about reducing violence. And it's not about reducing mass murder incidents. It's about gun confiscation. And they're very stealth about it, as I, as I indicated. So it's going to be interesting moving forward what the Congress is going to do about this. They can't get their act together anyway. But this guy, he's not going to be stopped under this Congress. I don't care who the, the next Speaker of the House is. They're not going to stop this guy. The only thing that's going to stop Barack Obama is that Monday in January of 2017, when he's escorted out of the White House. It's the only thing that's going to stop him. Thanks for joining me. You can follow me on Twitter at Sheriff Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, or at thepeoplessheriff.com. God bless you and good Lord willing. Tune in next Saturday. You're listening to David Clark, the People's Sheriff, on the Blaze Radio Network.